I used to sing that song growing up in church. And it was a little confusing for me because I always thought that, that Christmas songs were supposed to be just inherently happy. But that song always, just because of its minor chords, just, it always seemed to be a little on the sad side. And I think one of the reasons it seems a little sad is because I'm not exactly sure that everybody understands what it is that you're singing. You just sang the words. I just heard you sitting up here. You sang the words, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That, that's what you sang, but do you know what the words mean? I had a kid in my high school group out at Nooksack. His name was Roy Rosales. Roy came to Jesus just entering into high school. And because he had no church context and no faith filter at all, he was the best question asker ever. The first time I shared the story of Christmas with Roy, his response was, he goes, do you mean to tell me God had a kid? I thought that was beautiful. And he grew up here his whole life, just so you know. I was at, uh, with Roy at his very first Christmas concert, and we sang that song, the song that you just sang, and after the first verse, he leaned over and asked me a question. He goes, so, so who kidnapped Israel, and how much was the ransom? <laughs> I think those are great questions, and I'd like to fill you in so that you really understand what it was that you just participated in. 700 years before Jesus, the nation of Israel is being held hostage by their own disobedience. The cost of the ransom was the cost of their own freedom, which came because they rejected God. The first seven chapters of this Old Testament book, written by a guy by the name of Isaiah, tells the broken story of a broken nation. And it's a heartbreaking story that's summarized with these words that show up about eight chapters in. The Bible says, because this people, Isaiah talking to his own nation... Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Now, I know everybody knows who Rezin and Remaliah was, right? Remaliah had a kid. His name was Pekah. Rezin and Pekah were basically two political candidates. And the entire nation had put all of their hope that these two political candidates were going to be able to take care of all the problems and solve every issue that the nation had. Does that sound familiar to anybody in the room? <laughs> Just saying. The people of Israel had rejected God's path to freedom. They were putting all of their faith in human leaders to deliver them, which is a caution to all of us because I want to remind you about human leaders. They're human and therefore, we should question whether or not they can truly deliver us at all. Verse 7, therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all of his pomp. The people of Israel were going to be held captive by a tyrant because of their disobedience. And that shouldn't shock any of us because maybe you've learned this too. Anytime we're disobedient to God, we always end up in captivity. It's just the way it works. We end up being held hostage by our own choices and decisions. And before we know it, verse 8 is happening to us. It will overflow all of the channels, run over all of its bank, sweep into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. And then Isaiah utters a beautiful little word that brings hope. Emmanuel. That's where the trust should have been. Not in the human leaders, but in God, in God alone. I would summarize it this way, and I put it in your outline this way. In the time of the prophet Isaiah, so 700 years before Jesus even shows up, the nation was divided, literally and figuratively. 
The nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, multiple tribes to the north, Judah to the south, and they were divided politically and socially and economically and spiritually. It was like someone had, had just driven a wedge right down the center of the nation. There was also a vertical wedge that had been driven right through the heart of the nation. Has anybody else noticed a bit of a rift in our country over the last couple of weeks? And neither side can really understand why the other side's freaking out. This is so unbelievably relevant right now. The nation was divided. The nation was not trusting God. The king of Judah had actually put all of his hope and trust in the Assyrian king to become his, basically his security guard. Okay? Simple truth. Don't ever trust an arch enemy to protect you. It's just not wise. At some point, that arch enemy is going to become your arch enemy again. And whether he says he's got your back or not, they're not to be trusted. But that's exactly what was going on. Israel had turned to worshiping stuff and things instead of worshiping God. They chose the security of possessions over the security of God who had always been there for them. And because they did that, the path is just so natural. The nation had lost hope. They felt hopeless. It was a dark time. The nation was being held captive. Darkness spread and people felt lost. The nation was divided. They were not trusting God anymore. They were hoping human leaders could bail them out. And they just found unbelievably, they, they just felt unbelievably despairing in their heart. Does that describe a country to anybody in the room right now? Like, do we get that? Well, into that darkness, God raises up a prophet his name is Isaiah, and we're going to get to know him so well as we prepare to head towards Christmas because we're going to spend the whole pre-Christmas season looking at the book of Isaiah. He's a prophet, okay? Let me give you the job description of a prophet really, really quickly. The job of a prophet was to speak for God, okay? The word literally means forth teller, okay? Not fortune teller, but forth teller, someone who speaks forth the word of God. Somewhere along the line, because I've been in the county for like 20 years or so, I got on a list up at Western Washington University. I don't know what class it is, but usually about three times a year, I get a phone call from a student who says, hey, I've got this assignment in class. I'm supposed to interview somebody who has a job that I know absolutely nothing about. So apparently pastor is on that list, okay? Because three times a year, I always get this phone call. So I got a phone call this fall. Young guy comes and sits in my office and he's like, okay, so I got some questions here for you. He goes, so in the simplest of terms, what's the job of a preacher? And I said, well, in the simplest terms, to the best of my ability and with the mo as much humility as I can muster, my job is to speak on behalf of God. He didn't even blink. He said, that must suck. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes, right? That's kind of how it works. And that was the job of a prophet, to speak on behalf of God. When pe whether people wanted to hear it or not, that's what he was supposed to reflect. The prophet had more to his job description. He was also supposed to warn people of God's judgment. The message was simple. You need to change your direction or this is not going to go well for you at all. If you don't come into compliance with the direction God wants you to go, God's actually going to press himself back against you and that never goes well for anybody. Can I tell you something? If you say that message long enough and loud enough, people begin to avoid you. It's just the way it works. You don't get invited to Thanksgiving. It's just kind of the way it works because you have to carry the weight of God's judgment. There's another part of his job description. A prophet was supposed to tell people what they don't want to hear. We, right? 
I said, that sounds so fun. My job is to tell you what you don't want to hear. So Isaiah shows up 700 years before Jesus and said, so I'm here to tell you, God's not pleased. God's judgment is coming. And I know you don't want to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You need to return to God, repent of your sin. That's the only way you, that's the only hope that you have of being renewed. Not a popular message. I'm sure there were times when the prophet wanted to hand in his resignation. There's a famous part of Isaiah chapter 6. God asks a question, who will go for me and say this message? Isaiah puts up his hand and says, here am I, send me. I am sure there were moments when Isaiah would show up on the street corner to deliver God's message, and instead of thinking, here am I, send me, his thought was, there he is, send him. Because <laughs> I'm done with this. You know, if the job was that hard, what kept him coming back? Why did he keep showing up over and over? Where did he find the hope to continue? Well, I believe Isaiah found hope in the last beautiful part of his job description. Any prophet who dared to speak for God also had this aspect to his message. He or she had the amazing opportunity to remind people of God's promises. As a pastor, I love doing that. And I'm not saying being a pastor and being a prophet are exactly the same thing, but there is a lot of overlap between these two job portfolios. You know why I love reminding people of God's promises? I love reminding them because God always keeps his promises, and that gives me hope, especially when life is dark. So if you don't know some of the promises of God, let me encourage you today. God promised eternal salvation to anyone who believes on Jesus Christ. That's hope. God promised to hear every prayer that you ever uttered. He didn't guarantee how he was going to answer it, but he promised you that he would hear every single prayer. That's hope. God promised to be there no matter how dark the reality of your life becomes. That's hope. God promised to never leave you and never forsake you. That's hope. God promised that one day his kingdom would be real and visible and that everyone who was faithful on this side of heaven would get to rule and reign with him for the rest of eternity. That's hope. God promised that one day, one day, cancer, tears, child abuse, domestic violence, human trafficking, lying, grief, loneliness, and pain were going to be banished for the rest of eternity. That, my friends, is hope in a very dark time. Amen? Amen. Now, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear the hopelessness of how Isaiah is going to get to the end of chapter 8, but please don't give up. Stay with me. At the end of chapter 8, this is how Isaiah describes his friends, his family, and his country. He says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Boy, that's heavy, isn't it? That's heavy, it's heavy, but it's also true, isn't it? Well, when things are good, praise you, Jesus, everything in my life is wonderful. I am just so blessed. But when things are bad, we exchange a praise Jesus for a curse Jesus pretty quick. Gloom, darkness, and distress all around. It's unbelievably bleak, but don't give up. 700 years before Jesus... Isaiah shows up and says, don't give up. Don't give up. He says, the darkness is heavy, but the weight of hope is going to tip the scale. 
It's going to go in a completely different direction. And as we get to chapter 9, the entire book begins to pivot. And this is where we find hope. I only have one goal for the next three weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. As far as it depends on me, I'm going to scream from the mountaintops that the people of God have a reason to have hope in this season. Because we know the God who sponsored Christmas. And we're going to walk through that together. Chapter 9, verse 1 says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. When Jesus was born and where he did most of his ministry was in a geographic location known as Galilee. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Did you hear that promise? God says there's going to be no more gloom. He's going to put everything right. And into the darkness of our reality, a light has actually been turned on. I have a question for you. Have you ever walked into a room, turned on a light, and watched the darkness actually win? never happens, right? Darkness can't overcome light. Why? Because light is more powerful than darkness. The question is, are we actually going to turn the switch on during this Christmas season or not? When you're in the dark and you don't like the dark, somebody turns on a light, that's an unbelievably great gift. I just wonder what would be different in Whatcom County if we all made the decision that we're going to turn the light on through Christmas. In the darkness of civil war, a small little tiny light emerged. One of my favorite stories from history is that of Richard Roland Kirkland. Richard Kirkland was a Confederate soldier in the Civil War. On December the 13th, 1862, he and his unit pressed themselves up against a stone wall at the base of an area that was known as Mary's Heights near Fredericksburg, Virginia. In the war that followed, in the days that followed, they inflicted unbelievable casualties on the Union attackers. And on the night of December the 13th, Kirkland watched as his troops wound their way back into the field hospitals. But he could hear in the distance the voices of soldiers crying who were left out on the field because they couldn't walk. On the morning of December the 14th, when the light began to emerge into that little valley and expose that stone wall, laying in that plain were 8,000 Union soldiers that had been shot in front of the stone wall at Mary's Heights. Many of them were still alive, terribly wounded. And they were screaming for help and for water. Just wanted a drink. All night long, soldiers from both sides had been forced to listen to the painful cry of the wounded for hours, but neither side ventured out onto the field, terrified of losing their own lives. They thought they'd get shot. At some point during the day, this young man named Kirkland allegedly appro approached Confederate Brigadier General Joseph B. Kershaw. That's a great name, isn't it? And he said, I want to go out and help the soldiers from both sides. By Kershaw's own account, he denied the request at first, but then finally relented because Kirkland would not, he, he just wouldn't relent. In the beginning, Kirkland said, Can I, would it be okay if I took a white flag with me so people will know what I'm doing? His general said, absolutely not. We're not surrendering to anybody today. 
To which Kirkland responded, all right then, sir, I guess I'll go and take my chances. Kirkland gathered all the canteens he could carry. He filled them with water, and he ventured out on the battlefield. He went back and forth several times, giving wounded Union soldiers and Confederate soldiers water and warm clothing and blankets. And soldiers from both sides watched what this young man was doing, and not a single shot was fired. General Kershaw later stated that he observed Kirkland for more than an hour and a half. The Confederate side thought the Union side would open fire. The Union side thought the Confederate side was going to open fire, which would have resulted in Kirkland being caught in crossfire. But within a very short time, it became unbelievably obvious to everybody just exactly what Kirkland was doing and that he was loving and bringing water to both sides of the conflict. Kirkland worked all day. And he didn't stop until every wounded soldier from both sides had received a drink. If you go to Fredericksburg today, you'll find a beautiful statue of a young man holding in his arms an enemy and pouring water into his parched mouth. It took one person to bring hope into darkness and everything changed. Kirkland is known, his nickname is the Angel of Mary's Heights. One person bringing hope to the hopeless. When I heard that story for the first time, I'm a bit of a history buff, I just kept thinking to myself, Jesus could have stepped back from our darkness and retreated, but instead he stepped into the darkness to bring hope and inspired people for centuries to do heroic acts like that that don't seem to make a lot of sense but always bring a little bit of light into a lot of darkness. I want to share a quick story with you. We created this beautiful little video to show you um, a friend of mine. His name's Derek. Derek's one of those people that brings light into darkness in a very unique and, and, and original way. And last night when I came to church, we were going to show the video, and then we realized that the, the video did not work. And so what happens is if, uh, if the video doesn't work, you get at, at Christ the King, we just kind of fly by the seat of our pants. I mean, we're like, we're not purpose-driven. We're accident-driven. That's how it works around here. <laughs> and so what happens is if we don't have a video that works, we just go live. So uh, Derek is here right now in this particular service, and... Uh, I'm going to go and talk to my friend over here, because if you can't go video, you might as well go live, right? That's cool. Awesome. Oh, there he is. Hi, Derek. Hey, buddy. Let me give that to you. It's awesome. I'd like to introduce you to Derek Thornton. Um, Derek, tell us a little about yourself and, and, and your line of work. Where do you work? Uh, I'm the controller at People's Bank, so I am in accounting and finance. So that means you do numbers for a living, Excel spreadsheets. You're speaking my love language. That, uh, yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> I am so thankful that God equipped certain people to know how to do numbers, Excel spreadsheets, and all the rest of that, because I don't know anything about any of that stuff whatsoever. So people that actually like to crunch numbers, that's miraculous to me. It's just wonderful. And if you are one of those people, God bless you, and thank you, Jesus, for, for making people like that. That's awesome. So, Derek, you actually do something on top of your job, which is you volunteer with one of our community partners called Lydia Place. Can you tell us what does Lydia Place do, and, and how are you involved with them? Uh, I serve on the board of the directors there, and uh, their purpose is to end the homelessness. And they do that through three main ways. Of they have a transitional house where they can take um, single moms, families, up to about 20 people, and they put them in a home for up to six months where they can get back on their feet. They do it through rental subsidies and getting people a place to live. 
um, and they do it through case management, so breaking the cycle of homelessness, because in Whatcom County right now, 23% of the homeless people are under the age of 18, and 10% of them are under the age of four. So that means wow. last night, there was probably about 68 preschoolers that didn't have a home. Wow. That, that would seem pretty dark to me, to think that small children don't have a home. Um, you have a wife, you have kids. You could just go home and do your own thing and completely ignore that issue. But for some reason, you felt compelled to bring a little bit of light into that darkness. Can you, why? Why? Widows and orphans. We're called to look after them. And um, I lost my dad when I was 17, so I know what it's like to have a single mom. But I also know that I wasn't built to be able to build a home or to go and fundraise money for nonprofits. But I was given a gift to work with numbers and spreadsheets and to be able to explain that to people that it just makes sense. And so um, the executive director was one of my customers and she started talking to me and said, hey, we have this need. We don't have anybody who just works with numbers. I said, I can do that. I can work with you guys. And honestly, it's not a lot of work. It's just fun for me. It's just fun for you. <laughs> can we all agree? that it breaks Jesus' heart to know that children under the age of four don't have a home at Christmas? Can we agree that as far as it depends on us, we're supposed to be light in that darkness? Can we agree together that God wants us to do something about that? And whether we do it directly or indirectly, it's people like Derek, who instead of carrying canteens full of water to wounded, he just picks up Excel spreadsheets in his computer and makes the same kind of difference. In this much darkness, a little bit of light goes an awfully long way. Would you join me? I just think it'd be great if we prayed over Derek and his wife Anna and their kids as they continue to make this unbelievable sacrifice. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank you for Derek's life. Thank you for the hope he brings to Lydia Place. And Lord, for those of us who slept underneath of cover last night in the warmth, I pray that our hearts would never, ever be so cold as to neglect those who may have experienced cold in a way that we don't understand last night. God, I thank you for my friend and all of his unique gifts and the fact instead, that instead of stepping away from the darkness and ignoring the problem, he made a decision to carry the light of Jesus into the darkness. God, would you bless him this Christmas season? And God, as far as it depends on us, would you allow us to continue to partner with Lydia Place so that the cycle of homelessness is broken here in Whatcom County until every person has a roof over their head and food on their table. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Can we say thanks to Derek for everything that he's doing with Lydia Place? A little bit of darkness. And I look in front of me and I see a whole lot of light. But the question is, will we actually respond? You know, Isaiah must have loved to have written those words. After writing eight chapters of heavy stuff, he must have loved to have written the words, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. He was really writing out the meaning of his own name. If you don't know what Isaiah means, it means the salvation of Jehovah, that God saves. I know it looks dark. I know it looks bleak. But that's where hope comes from. In fact, just a couple of chapters earlier, nestled right in the middle of chapter 7, are these beautiful words, a little tiny verse that we quote at Christmas time that just screams hope. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. That's the beauty of Christmas, that God did a miracle. 
And I think we could agree that it's somewhat miraculous that a young woman who's never had sexual relations with a man is suddenly pregnant with a child and gives birth to him. I think we could put that in the miraculous category. But what's even more miraculous is that that child was a gift from God. And he was going to be with us. And he was going to transform darkness into light, brokenness into beauty, and hopelessness into hope. So if you're discouraged today, you can't figure out why the world seems so angry, frustrated, and divided. I want you to know that for the next couple of weeks, the only thing we're going to talk about is hope. Hope that came in the form of a little tiny child. How mysterious that God would choose to interrupt the world that way. So where do we find hope? Just quickly. We find hope in the, province of, in the promise of deliverance. We believe Jesus can deliver us from anything that burdens us. We believe Jesus can deliver us from sin, from our own disobedience. We believe that God is the great deliverer and that gives us hope. Where else do we find hope? We find hope in the gift of a Savior. I mean, this is the beauty of Christmas. Messiah came. Emmanuel, God with us, actually came and dwelt amongst us for a little while. But here's the beautiful part of the story. It doesn't end there. Jesus came, but he's coming back again. And when he comes back, everything will be made right and hope will be fully known. Finally, we find hope in the intimate reality of God with us. You may not feel it right now, but God is here. He's with you. God is in front of you and behind you, on your right and on your left. God is completely encircling you, and he promised he would never, ever leave you. That's where we find hope. I remember years ago, 23 to be exact, sitting in a delivery room at Bethesda Hospital in Steinbach, Manitoba. My wife had just given birth to my oldest son, Braden. And I remember thinking, sitting in that corner, looking at my wife, I remember thinking how unbelievably strong she is. Because I'd watched her go through hours of labor to give birth to our son. I remember exactly how it felt when the nurse put that beautiful little baby into my arms. Now, the truth is, he actually was not very beautiful. Um, He was at the last service. I said it out loud. He, he had the worst cone head you have ever seen in your life. It was horrible. They put a little hat on him and it just like popped right off the top. And, and my first question, like, is that going to stay that way? Like, can you round that up for me? Like just a little bit. It's like, woo. Okay. So thank you, Jesus. Um, but I remember sitting there when the lady came and put Braden in my arms for the first time. And I remembered thinking to myself, why would God give a baby to somebody who knows nothing about babies? Because Laurel knew everything about babies. I knew nothing. Nothing. I remember thinking that Braden was the last hope to carry on the fishbook name. Which, come to think of it, maybe isn't that good of an idea because I had to live through middle school with my last name and it is not kind to anybody. Okay, I'm just saying, all right? So... But I remember holding that little life in my hands. And if you're a parent, you get it. I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. 
like the weight of parenting. Another human being was pressing down on the back of my neck, and, and it just about folded me in half. I remember thinking how weak I felt and honestly, a little bit hopeless in the thought that I could actually parent that kid in the right direction. When God the Father handed Jesus to humanity at the very first Christmas, it felt like the weight of the world was on our shoulders. And if you get stuck there, it will break you in half. But I want to remind you, that's not how it went down. Jesus came with the promise of hope. Jesus came with the promise that we don't need to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders because he will carry the weight of the world on his and he is not small. He is not insignificant. He is no longer weak and helpless as he emerged onto the scene of human history. Today, God is big, and Jesus is strong, and his shoulders are big enough to carry your burden and my burden and all of our burdens. And if Jesus is strong enough to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders, why, for the love of God, are you carrying it too? That's the beautiful hope of Christmas. You don't need to carry the weight. So today as we close, I want to challenge you, church. Do you love and care for your neighbors enough to want them to experience the same kind of hope that you have? I don't care if I have to use guilt and manipulation for the next three weeks. I do have a question for you. I sat in my driveway last night and just stopped for a moment and I looked across the street at the house of one of my neighbors. And I asked myself a question. Do I care enough about his eternal destiny to spend two bucks on chocolate? Got real quiet. Is his eternal destiny worth that kind of an investment for me? Or is the truth of the reality that I really don't care? We have an opportunity because I want to remind you of something. Jesus said he was the light of the world. He also said we were the light of the world. I want to challenge this little light of mine to go out there and let it shine. Because if we don't, who will? And where will they find hope? Would you pray with me as we close today? Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters in this room right now. I thank you for the joy they are to me personally as they encourage me by living out Jesus in places I can never get to. God, I pray that we would carry hope in this season. Lord, hope stands out these days. In a world and a country that seems pretty dark and pretty broken and, and pretty divided, we bring a message of hope. Lord Jesus, would you allow us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, not just between brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters, but between all mankind and you. God, I pray this week 
whether we carry a canteen full of water, an Excel spreadsheet in a computer, or a chocolate bar. God, I pray that we would be the purveyors of hope in Whatcom County. So Lord Jesus, use us, I pray, as we head towards Christmas Eve to share the beautiful story that Emmanuel, God, is with us. God, I pray that beautiful story would bring all of us hope. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen.